Hi, my name is Param Venkatraman and you're listening to Experiencing Data. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today, we're going to talk about fractals. Actually, we're not going to talk about fractals, but I am going to talk to my friend. I hope I can call him a friend, Param Venkataraman. He is the chief design officer of Fractal Analytics, a uh, services company that works on analytics, data science, AI, machine learning types of products and solutions for their clients. So Param, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. This is absolutely exciting because you're one of those rare species who's working on the intersection of design and analytics, yeah. just like we are. So, I mean, it's, it's super exciting and I'm really happy and humbled to be here, invited on this show. Thank you. Good, good. Yeah. Well, we have lots to talk about here. You know, I, I wanted to first talk a little bit, just address the audience here. I guess the whole show I'm supposed to be addressing the audience, but why do we have a chief design officer on the show today? You know, we've obviously the show, I have a lot of guests from data science and analytics leaders. And I'm always interested when I find a design leader who's focused in the analytics and data product space, because it says something about the culture is changing. Why is this company doing it this way? Why is design important at this place? And that's what I wanted to dig into today, because I think, as you were saying, design is still a fairly new thing, especially in some enterprise companies where they're maybe a little bit behind on digital design, especially in the machine learning, AI and analytics space is still fairly new. And so that's why I wanted to have is to get your perspective on that. You come out of IDEO, you've had a lot of great experience here, and now you're running a team. So my first question is, why did the CEO decide to hire? Like, what happens that a CEO of a services company, which is what Fractal Analytics is, how does he just wake up and decide that I need a chief design officer? Like most people think CDO and they're thinking chief data officer on this show. But can you tell us about why he felt like I need to have a leader? I need to have this be an executive little title at my org. What happened and how did you come yeah. there? Sure. Great question. And I'd love to see my boss answer that question. But let me let me take a crack at that. So I think, you know, in the journey of uh, Fractal over the last 20 years, I mean, I've been here for the last two years, but from what I've heard about the history of the company and I know how it's grown, there's been this evolution of analytics over these 20 years, right? As an industry and also fractal learning to sort of get better and better and constantly look at what's the next, what's the next, what's the next. The genesis of fractal was always this idea of powering every human decision in the enterprise. That's been one of the ideas that the founding members of, this, uh, of fractal uh, sort of thought about when they started fractal. And as they've grown, it has always been about seeing how can, you know, analytics and data science power that decision, every decision, right? And so I think at some point of time, there was this realization or, or, or feeling or sort of idea that, you know, if you have to power every human decision, not just with data and data science and algorithms, but also how do you think about the human dimension in a much more sharper and much more specific way? So powering every human decision in the enterprise can't be fulfilled if you really don't go sharply focused on human decision. So that that is, I think, the genesis of it many, many years back. Our group CEO, Srikanth, he's, he's always been passionate about psychology, human behavior, understanding why people do what they do, and sort of all those themes have been there, and you know, I think in his in his sort of mind for a long time. 
And so I think a few years back when Fractal found this company called Final Mile, which was founded about, I think, 12 or 13 years back, a few years back, Fractal acquired Final Mile. And Final Mile is a behavioral science and uh, is a company that's been founded on very, very cutting-edge behavioral science principles. And behavioral science, as you can, I'm sure you understand, is really about understanding why people do what they do and really getting to the heart of the explainability of that. So that was the first sort of concrete step in that direction in terms of building a capability with design expertise in Fractal. And even before that, there was this realization that you have to really look at AI, not just from the lens of AI, but it's about bringing AI, engineering, and design together. And that is when AI is truly effective, truly, it, it truly does what it's meant to do, and not just uh, a good algorithm that you know, technically does the job, but doesn't create impact or doesn't create an outcome that we want. So I think that was the genesis. And then with the acquisition of Final Mile, we started bringing in behavioral science into AI and um, engineering and design. And then you know, I joined about a couple of years back to strengthen that expertise and that capability. And we started building out a bigger team with behavioral science and human-centered design, user experience design, interaction design, all the different sort of design specializations. And so now we've grown to a team of about 50 plus people as we speak with expertise in all these different design disciplines. So that that's the genesis. And that, that's why I guess I have the job that I have. Got it, got it. Can you explain like, you know, in simple terms, I think, you know, for some of the data leaders we're listening to, they're probably thinking, oh, well, we might have designers, but they work in marketing or they work on the apps that, you know, the digital side of our company. And they're probably design curious. <laughs> yeah. Could you explain in kind of simple words, like what is design in the context of these analytics and data products and AI beyond user interfaces and data visualization, which is where most people's minds immediately jump is that it means graphs and charts and, and that part of it. What's the business value? Like if I went out and hired a design leader like you and came in, what would I get for that? What would be the change that I would get? Can you can you talk about that a little bit, the business impact that design has? Sure. Great question. The idea was that, so when you look at analytics and this, the AI space, that, and, and it, it, it's really growing like crazy. There is so much that is about how do you use, whether it's machine learning, whether it's you know any other analytics sort of technology or solutions, and how do you make better effective decisions, right? That's at the heart of it, which is how, how do we make better decisions? That decision might be, let's say, a consumer, you know, who's using an Apple Watch and, you know, is trying to make better health decisions. It could be some kind of a data science algorithm that's running inside an enterprise, helping make marketing decisions. Uh, let's say what sort of looking at demand generation for the next quarter or for the next year and so on, right? And of course, I mean, that's just you know a few of them, but there could be so many other varieties. When we talk about design here, what we mean is two parts of it, right? One is how do you frame the problems that you're framing? When you frame the objective of any analytical solution or a project or a, you know, a, a, a product, what problem are you solving? And you can look at it through the lens of data, which is what data do I have and therefore what kind of an algorithm or what kind of an analytical solution can I create? Or you can look at it from the vantage point of, you know, who am I making this for? What do they actually need? Why do they need it? And, you know, trying to get to the heart of the user need, the end user need, not the stakeholders need. Traditionally, I think analytics, you know, uh, especially enterprise-focused analytics was very and I think still is, is very skewed towards stakeholder needs. 
I think now it's beginning to mature and sort of go to that point where we are starting to think about the actual end user, the business user, or even the consumer in, in many cases. I'm trying to think of how do they think about it? Why should they be using this product or this solution or this dashboard or app or whatever it is that you're creating? So the first part of it is about framing the problem from an end user's perspective or from a human being's perspective. And the second part of it is how do you create the right solution, which is A, it's easy to use, it doesn't need a manual or a training, B, it should be delightful, it should you know do the job in the simplest, in the most delightful way. I mean, to the extent that, you know, we call it, in fact, a non-conscious design, which is that it should be almost invisible. In some cases, completely invisible. And in some cases, you know, the, the user doesn't even realize that he or she is doing what they're doing. That, that's the holy grail, of course. You can't, you know, achieve that all the time. But, but the idea is to try and at least make it as simple and effective as possible. There's an echo here happening on, on the show right now. They've heard me talk about this as well. I think, especially in the business context and business software most of it should be invisible. You shouldn't really notice it. And if you're starting to notice it, you're probably drawing attention to the wrong thing because you're taking people out of flow. I do want to go back to the part one of what you said about the framing and making it for the stakeholder versus the user. So, you know, in the enterprise space, sometimes our stakeholders are the users. But I think there's a really important distinction here, which is, and maybe you can correct me if you have a different experience, but the distinction here that matters is, you know, let's take, for example, you know, you're building something for, I don't know, purchasing department or procurement, you know, some kind of tool for them. And you're dealing with the head of procurement who's telling the analytics group about here's all the numbers I need so that my staff can better decide how much should we buy printer paper for or whatever. And the difference here is that the head of the department may know the best theoretical way to do that. Like you should be pricing with the following data points. Like, we know what we think we want. The actual person who decides how much to buy paper for in procurement may have their own idea about how to do that. And so this is the interesting difference is what does the person want to do? What is the change they're willing to make with data? How much decision support will they take from a piece of software versus what, quote, they should be doing? That's that's the distinction is helping unpack that. And sometimes it does mean you got to bring you know, the manager together who may not ever touch this interface and the actual user, and they need to get on the same page about, hey, that's not really how we buy paper. We actually buy paper like this. And I would never look at last year's cost because whatever, you know, like, is that kind of what you're talking about here Absolutely. when you talk about? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think there, you know, to kind of unpack that even further, right? I mean, there is a decision maker kind of a stakeholder, right? And I think there are some stakeholders who are, sometimes wearing that hat, but at some times they're also wearing the hat of the end user or one of the end users, right? So I think if we think about it only from the vantage point of the stakeholder as a decision maker, then of course he or she has a bunch of biases because he or she is signing the check and saying, go do this project, or that I think we need to build a solution, right, in that company. And of course, I mean, there is an important business need that that stakeholder is trying to define. And that's important to understand, but it's not enough to, it's important to not get limited by that or get biased by that and to start looking at, okay, what is the business need, but also what is the end user need and what are the stakeholder as users and how do they, you know, what, what do they need, right? And, and think about that whole thing as an ecosystem of people who, who need a bunch of things. And the unpacking even further is, you know, every one of those people has a set of functional needs and every one of those people has a set of emotional needs. One of the things that we focus a lot on is trying to think about the fact that every human decision is actually made 
with emotion it is based on emotion it is not based on rational facts and evidence and all of that stuff we use rationale or evidence to justify why we did what we did that's post facto but when we are actually in the so called hot state of decision making we are actually making the decision from an emotional standpoint much more than functional so that's why we try and look at we we do look at both and then we see what drivers can we influence or what can we work on which is much more aligned to their functional and emotional needs the more we can land in that emotional space the chances of adoption the chances of of acceptance and engagement is going to be higher yeah yeah i can't agree with that more and i think that this is where a lot of a lot of teams that have a homogenous makeup some of these enterprise data teams that that have a very one one worldview on things it's analytical it's data driven and the promise of all this stuff that sounds very utopian almost and you're you're very right that you wonder if teams listening to the show are wondering why some like it's so obvious the data says we should do this and like yet why did the ceo go this way it's like what's in it for the ceo what's the personal risk to him or her what are the other downstream uh, impacts that could happen there? How is it going to make him feel if he looks bad? There's all these other considerations that may have gone into that, which maybe you could have answered with the solution. Maybe you can't. The point there is, have you even tried to tease them out and address them in, in the way you presented your evidence or your decision support information? It's This is all part of it. So I'm 100% with you uh, on that. You know, I thought it might be good to give an example of this, right? So if you look at the world of sales reps right sales reps are the, in the front line they're going and meeting the actual customers you know whether it's in the pharma industry or whether it's in automobile or any other industries right i mean there are a bunch of people who are really you know keeping the business running on the ground and you know they're mostly on in the field on the you know at least pre covid i i guess that was a reality at post covid i'm not sure but yeah i mean the point is they're in the front line back in the headquarters or back in their sort of manager's office the managers want to know what's going on with the sales rep and they want to be giving you know sort of top down directions in terms of what do we want to focus on this quarter or this week or this day what kind of customers do you want to be focusing on what should you tell them what should be the messaging what should be the prioritization what is the you know relationship information that you have about this customer and therefore how can you you know work, you know engage them better and so on and so forth right and then you also want the sales rep to give you feedback about what do they do and you know did they actually do what they did what they were supposed to do or whatever whatever right and how did that go now it might seem like the best thing to do is give them a you know a, a digital device and ask them to track some data feedback some of the things that happened after that meeting uh, it makes a lot of business sense to do that but from the sales rep standpoint he or she is feeling like you know what my boss is now monitoring everything that i'm doing but that's the emotional need which is sort of getting created because of this new tool in their hands which is now suddenly sort of feeling like you know like a big brother and so how do you deal with that emotional need and emotional state and therefore how do you think about the digital solution that you're making because if you if you don't solve for that guess what's going to happen he or she is going to start gaming it he or she is going to start figuring out workarounds he or she is going to start not because they want to lie or that because they are bad people it's just because it's just fear i mean it that fear makes you do certain things that you you know otherwise would not do and so how do you design something that takes into account that kind of fear and that kind of emotional need. I'm with you there and I think if you're not out there regularly interfacing and getting that customer exposure to the people that are and customer here, I'm really talking about a user here in this case it could be these internal sales reps. 
If you don't know what it's like to be them, it's really hard to routinely produce solutions that are going to be used. You might get lucky occasionally, where especially when the risk is super low and maybe nobody cares, but something like this, if you're paid on performance and all this, every phone call is going to sound like it went great and like, yep, still considering purchasing, you know, <laughs> like they're not actually logging the stuff that you may want to use to make better decisions. And, and so I'm with you there. Let's talk a little bit, though, about where things go wrong here. So design is kind of messy. And when I do my training seminar, one of the first things I talk about is like, there's sort of a process here, but it's not always linear and we don't always start at step zero and you might come into something that's halfway done. And the first thing we do is run a usability study on a competitor's thing or on what we have now. And then we go back to step two and then we go to five. It's not serial and it's kind of messy and that's normal. It's messy if you're used to things being very procedural. It's normal for design, but I usually frame it as messy because if you're coming from the data perspective or the engineering perspective, it kind of has a messy feel to it. So I want to hear from you, like, where do you think data science and analytics teams need to adjust their thinking to accommodate design? But I also want to hear where do the designers need to make some changes about, you know, working with data? What do they need to know that's different? So I don't know if you have opinions on both of those sides, but I think we all could probably work towards the middle a little bit more. What's your take on this? Absolutely. I think the the, the end sentence that you said was absolutely spot on. We we do need to sort of both try and figure out what's what's the way in which we can understand and work much closer to the so-called other side in a better way. So a couple of learnings. One is, uh, uh, you know, you know, whatever little, uh, and, you know, a few years back, two, more than two years back, I had no clue about data science and analytics. It was a new world for me. I'd worked in, you know, technology before, but data science is a whole different ball game. So as I've now sort of got acquainted with it and I'm still much, you know, learning a lot as we speak. One of the things that I've learned is actually that data science itself is very iterative and is very, it's not a linear thing. And just like design isn't, you know, just like design is iterative, you know, data science also is very iterative. There's this idea of hypothesis and there's an idea of, you know, building and, and you know, experimenting and then you sort of learn and the algorithm learns and then you, you know, sort of get better and better at it. It's, it's exactly what we talk about in rapid prototyping with design. You know, it's also about how we frame problems and, you know, from a, you know, and, and then there's an iteration and understanding and framing those problems as well and reframing them. So there's a lot of parallels that I think there are, uh, you know, which I, I therefore I think that the, the, the design world is not that different from the data science world from that perspective. That's a really good observation. And I agree with it if you're talking about the work that I do, that I do at, when I'm saying myself as a data scientist, which I'm not. Yes, like even building models. I got to I remember one one of my students one time framed this as cakes. It's like I got to build 20 cakes before I can figure out if there's actually a workable model here. And and so there's a lot of experimentation going on, which is like the design part. But when you go up the level to like okay, I built the thing, I built the model, I got it right. Now I give it to somebody, they use it and then I go on to the next project. At that point there's this very analytical perspective on how it's supposed to be used. So there's two framings there. There's the individual kind of data science work, the the really technical part of it, and then there's the delivery to the customer part, which to me is not and and you, I want you to challenge me on this. My general perception is that the thinking is duh, the data is so obvious, why would someone not use this? It's very just like, how could you not want this? How could you not use it? What, what do you mean it's not easy to use? It's, it's look at the screen. It's obvious. 
I was actually going to come to that, which is that I think at at one level it looks like it's very similar, and there are some there are similarities, and you know I I think it's a I was as as you were speaking I was realizing that there is a process aspect to it or a principles aspect to it, and there are there are a lot of common principles like iteration, experimentation, prototyping, whatever you want to use that word, or framing, reframing, hypothesis building, and framing and reframing, whatever. So there's that that piece. So these are principles that I think are similar. I think where it differs is in probably the mindset piece, which is that how design comes at it is from fundamentally the human angle, which is how do we think about the human dimension of that problem? It's almost consciously saying, let's hold on, let's not think about the business perspective or the technology perspective or the operational perspective as yet when you're starting to frame the problem. You start with okay, let me put all of those aside; those are important too. But for a moment, let's think about it from the human dimension. and once you understood that and reframed it from that vantage point then you start thinking about okay if this is what the end user cares about what's the business potential here or the viability here and the, what's the technology and the operational feasibility here so it's a question of sequencing i guess uh, at, at some level so i think that's the big difference which is that i think the world of data science is not used to thinking in terms of emotions experience and the the so called softer aspects of things which in my opinion is not actually the softer it's actually the harder part it's harder to dimensionalize emotions experience and behavior which is you know extremely complex extremely layered extremely unpredictable so i think the more we can bring those two worlds together the world of evidence the world of data the world of quantitative information with the qualitative emotional and experiential i think that's where the magic is talk to me about the design shift here you even mentioned on our call you said i'm not i don't know if you said i'm not convinced but you said something along the lines of like i'm not convinced that traditional design methods are necessarily the right way to approach designing for analytics and data science can you dig into that a little bit what what do designers need to change and and if there's something about the design process itself that needs to change to get us better outcomes with data products what what were you thinking there when you said that Yeah absolutely i think i think the world of design is definitely going through a shift in many ways even even outside of the context of this conversation you know in terms of how de- design applies in a data science world design has started maturing uh, over the last you know 10 20 30 years especially in the last 10 years there's been a humongous amount of adoption of design in different industries in the data science and analytics world of course it's very very nascent but with that evolution i think bunch of people like us who've been doing this for some time have started thinking about what's the next version of design you know at at a meta level right and that's one of the reasons why i i i actually joined fractal and i was super excited about what we're doing here which is thinking about can we reimagine design in a post data science world or in a post data world right so that's something that i think we've i think we're still scratching the surface i i can't say that we've completely cracked it uh, but there are a few things that we're realizing one is that the traditional design process you know the classic design thinking model which is empathy then reframing then synthesis uh, synthesis and then reframing and then ideation and prototyping and you know detailed design whatever right that that sort of classic process it doesn't necessarily have the same steps in that chronology in the post data science world right if you have a lot of data about what your customers or what your users are doing and how they behaving whether it's episodic data or transactional data longitudinal data whatever it might be then you can actually start doing a lot of stuff up front you can actually maybe even you know start building some prototypes based on some hypothesis right at the beginning 
and you can use that to actually start framing some of the needs and you know looking at what empathy means with some actual real life data right i mean as opposed to traditionally how we might have done it in the qualitative way the pure qualitative way which is going out and meeting people and and understanding why why they're doing what they're doing but again i think the the answer is not this or that i think the answer is somewhere it's about mixing mixed methods i think for me that's really the best it's about trying to find out what's the best of this what's the best of that in context to whatever it is that you're trying to solve so that's one example the other example is of course also about how you have the ability to iterate and go through different sort of experiments and be able to use that in the real world and learn from that from those experiments and then be able to continue to inform your framing or your solution design as as you might move forward so a lot of these things are changing because of this possibility of data science which wasn't there before you know maybe 10 years back or, or more so i think as designers we we there's a it's a whole different new dimension that we could not think of earlier and then of course there's the aspect of technology and experience also which is you know especially in enterprise context i mean the design for enterprise is a relatively new thing and we are we're trying to think about how does human decision making happen in the enterprise context which is different from the world of consumer context and you know i i often hear this that in the enterprise world decisions are much more rational and much more you know logical and so on and again i i you know sort of uh, will will challenge that because it's ultimately human beings who are making decisions it doesn't matter whether it's an enterprise context or a consumer context what probably changes is some of those underlying i mean the mental models are different of course in a consumer world versus an enterprise world and the context is different so here the context is maybe a boss that's going to evaluate your work or some performance that you're answerable to your shareholders or to someone else and that drives some of your decisions but the point is i think the fact that we're looking at the enterprise world and looking at how does design play a role there as opposed to designing a consumer product that also has some interesting opportunities for the way we think about our design process so those are some you know early realizations that we've been having so far i don't want to get too deep into this particular topic but when you're hiring designers are you starting to look for a different skill set or are you like no i'm still looking for a classically good designer the data domain we can teach and and nurture that within our thing or no i actually need a different kind of designer we really want a culture that looks like these people not like those people what are you looking for there or is it nothing nothing different i mean i i guess at the heart of it the core skills that are critical or the the competencies uh, would be empathy curiosity the ability to understand the the emotional aspects of why people do what they do thinking about experience and being able to imagine experiences right i mean and design for that so those core core sort of skills will not change i think uh, over a longer period of time but that being said in the context that we are applying design as i said in enterprise and analytics and you know sort of ai context there are a few things that i'm realizing are interesting opportunities right so for example recently we've we've just about hired someone who used to work in the area of tax consulting for 5 years and then she's made a career shift into design by going to design school after that and you know i the moment i met her and you know saw that resume i was excited because here's here's something that's out of the ordinary here's here's something it's a classic sort of t shaped skills that we're looking for at the intersection of two very very usually unlikely disciplines so i i mean i think we've been a bit lucky in in finding some of these interesting sort of mix mixtures of disciplines um, and the more we find that the more we sort of gravitate towards that but but of course there are also a lot of you know people like me who've come from a more traditional 
design background and have had to adjust and learn the world of analytics and enterprise as we go. Got it. Got it. Let's talk about scaling design as a practice. So I think you said you're growing from about 50 staff to about 80. Does Fractal see design growth as something happens through the hiring of people only, or is it the hiring of people? And it's also training our non-designers to use design in their work. Is it both of those, or is it really more about hiring staff? And like, we really want specialists on every product, you know, quote, specialists, meaning designers on these data products. And it's really their job to, to kind of own that. How do you guys frame that? Or is it a bad question? No, great question. And, and you know, it, it's spot on in terms of how we are thinking about it, which is what we realized early on is that our sort of mission is to bring design and behavioral science into every problem that we solve at Fractal. That's the reason why this department exists. It is not to, you know, just, let's say, I mean, we of course want to ship a bunch of projects or products or whatever it is, applications, and that's the means to, to that vision. But, but the point is that larger vision is that every problem that we solve, every conversation that we have at Fractal will have that aspect of human dimension in. That's the long-term goal. But the moment we state that long-term vision, what's very clear in, in that is that, you know, even if you were to grow a large experience team, even if you were to grow to 500 people, which is, you know, fairly unprecedented in the, in the design world, you know, then it, it is still not going to be enough because, you know, Fractal would have grown to, let's say, 10,000 people, I don't know. So what we realized is it's not enough if the designers and the behavioral science experts are doing this. It's important that we also have non-designers learn this way of thinking or doing to some extent, I mean, at least to a minimum. Just like I think it's important for me to understand or to be able to learn and apply AI and analytics in, in the world that we go forward in. So democratization is one of the key pillars for how we're building the practice and this capability in Fractal. In fact, you know, there's a huge focus on it. In fact, last year we started working on a design system, which from what I have heard is, is probably the first design system that is exclusively made for data science and analytics. Most of the other design systems that we've seen in the world out there are either for consumer products. There are a bunch of design systems that are for enterprise also, but, but still in a more broader sense for software. But we, we are the first design system. It's called the Phi design system, P-H-I. Phi design system for specifically and exclusively designed for analytics, given the data science and, and the data science context. I don't think a lot of our audience probably knows what a design system is. Can you just explain that first and then continue? So a design system traditionally is, think of it as patterns and frameworks that allow you to see, to create repeatable solutions that are of higher quality. That's the traditional notion of, of a design system. So for example, Google has something called Google Material Design, which is essentially a system that helps all the Android mobile applications have a similar user experience and user interface and, and a similar sort of approach in terms of interaction design. And therefore, the users, you know, irrespective of what app you use or what whoever has made that app, the user has a similar experience. And also the developers who made that application also will be able to, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They, they can start with something that's already thought through and of a higher quality and that it's faster to develop as well. So that's the traditional notion of a design system, which is, you know, essentially patterns, repeatability, and faster problem solving, right, at, at, at the heart of it. What we are doing is actually, there are two dimensions to our design system. One is the problem framing of it, which is how do you think about 
democratizing the way we frame the problems that we are solving that i spoke about earlier right if you don't frame the problem in the right way you might have the best solution it's not going to matter because it won't be solving the real problem so what we realized is that the design system needs to have two parts first part is the how do you frame the problem from an end user perspective and therefore we've built a, a, a system a toolkit for non designers to learn how to understand user needs how to frame problems from an end user perspective and not just from a data or from a business or from a domain or a data context so that's the first part of the design system the second part of the design system is the solution part which is like similar to the more the traditional design system which is patterns component libraries reusable you know libraries and components which will help you build analytical solutions uh, with much higher quality of user centricity user experience simplicity ease of use all of that stuff but specifically for data science and analytics and you know of course we still it's still early days it, you know it, as you know it takes many many years to build a robust scalable solid design system Google Material probably evolved over four to five years. We've we've been barely one year into that journey. We are still in a MVP beta stage, but you know, happy to report that we've had two uh, two Forrester reports cover the fire design system, mention it, and uh, you know, we've been able to sort of uh, put it out there and start piloting some of those and some of the projects that we're doing. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I look forward to to uh, watching that evolve. So please. Uh... Yeah. Oh, by the way, is that is it public? Is it something we can all see, or is that a is that an internal tool, an internal system for your work? At this point, it's an internal system for powering the work that we're doing for all our clients. But as we evolve this, there will be versions of this that we will democratize and put it out there in the more public domain. And so, uh, happy to share that at that point of time. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. This has been. Great. I know we could go on for probably a long time here to, to nerd out on this stuff, but I was curious if you kind of had any closing thoughts or if there any, is there a question I didn't ask you that you'd like to get out to our listeners, uh, people that are leading data product initiatives? What else do they need to hear from you? Any, any closing thoughts? I would say this, right, which is that I think the coming together of design and data is, is very, very, you know, it's a new thing. It's unprecedented. It's a bit like how the internet was a new thing back in the mid 90s. and it reminds me of that time because when the internet first came out in the in the sort of public domain outside the military and the government we were all sort of astounded by it we didn't know what to do with it and you know everybody was just fascinated with it and we just knew that it's going to change the world in some way i think data science ai this whole space is is in a very similar space is in a very i i see a lot of parallels and so i think the way to think about it is is that design and data will take some time to mature and and you know what's more important is to go into it with an open mind and experiment and i'm saying this for both designers as well as data scientists to try and see how the right model might evolve as we experiment and learn so i guess that's the big uh, you know message if i had to sort of pick one which is to experiment be patient and learn and see where this goes yeah yeah and and just to take that idea of what, just one step further if i'm the head of bi or i'm the head of data science at, at you know at an enterprise This sounds interesting. I get the behavioral science thing. I can understand the promise of this. I don't have a designer on my team. What should I do now? Like how do I take the first step with the resources I have now? Is there do you have a piece of advice about just to kind of take the first step? What what should they do? So I would say two things, right? One, get everyone in your team to start going and meeting real users, the end users that I was speaking about and asking them a lot of qualitative questions, which is open ended questions around what they do not what product you're building for them 
if you try and understand what their average day in the life is or you know what goes on in their workflow or whatever in that process and try and think about you know more divergent questions and open ended questions you might start discovering things that you might not have otherwise encountered so that's one sort of specific action that i think everyone can take and it's pretty straightforward just get out of your office space or cubicle or whatever it is or your laptop and just go and meet real people real users the second recommendation would be to try and maybe sign up for a course online there are a whole bunch of you know open online courseware on you know human centered design behavioral science any of these sort of disciplines and and uh, you know that also might open up your mind and of course books on these topics will also help so i think that might also give you a sort of starting point for how to start thinking about this awesome awesome thank you for the advice and where can people follow you is there a gym website or a, a linkedin or yeah i guess i mean linkedin is where i am relatively active uh, i have a twi- twitter handle which i'm not that active on but you know it, it has been around for a long time it's called onward param o n w a r d p a r a m got it and i do hope to have a renewed website at some point of time i will publish that awesome awesome well i will definitely link up your linkedin and the twitter there and param it's been really fun to uh, connect with you and i i look forward to hearing more about what's what's cruising over at uh, fractal in the in the years to come so thank you thank you brian this has been a lot of fun and uh, i look forward to learning from you as well thank you all right take care we hope you enjoyed this episode of experiencing data with brian o'neil if you did enjoy it please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data to get future podcast updates or to subscribe to brian's mailing list where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications visit designingforanalytics.com/podcast